Welcome to Talking Sock, your one-stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners. I'm your host, Pete Davidson. Today, in our first episode, aired on World Puppetry Day, I am joined by puppet builder and educator Catherine Hannaford. We are talking about the power of puppetry in education and the lasting impact of great educators on the individual. Catherine is very much my puppet master, a tradition that has been prevalent in theatrical arts, passing down the knowledge from master to apprentice. Join Catherine and I now, here on Talking Sock. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, My pleasure. I'm so glad to be able to talk to you about all the things I do in the puppet world. Okay, so I'm going to start with the question I ask everyone, and that is, why puppets? Why not? (laughs) You're going to have to go a little bit more than that for me. Well, puppets allow me to combine my passion for making. I just love to make things with my interest in technology and my like lifelong passion for learning because in puppet building you never ever stop learning there's always a new technique someone might try to build something and you go oh that's so amazing and you either try to replicate it or you might even ask them how did you do it and they will share with you Mm. so I'm but the thing I really love about the puppet world is I get to hang out with really silly cool people there is a kind of a culture of crazy folk in puppet land and I really adore just how much uh, puppet people are so willing to share. And I think part of the reason why we think puppetry is growing so much in Australia, but also around the world now with everything that's going on with Netflix and everything that's going on with the Henson Workshop, do you think that puppet people have a unique brand of crazy that just allows us to kind of keep sharing? Well, the sharing culture is actually new to the puppet world. It wasn't so long ago that the puppet master's secret was like absolute secret. Like if you were apprentice to a puppet master, you never divulged those secrets because that was like taboo. It's almost like a magician. Magician never tells anyone how they do the trick Mm. except for their apprentice. So that is why the magician community is so still so secretive is because they still maintain that. So until very recently, um, puppet peel builders, puppet puppeteers would never share how they would make their puppets or um, their shows or anything um, except for their apprentice. But now that we live in a very much a sharing culture with, um, you know, with online media and YouTube and all that, where everyone wants to share their life, puppet building is now part of that world, but also it has allowed the world to connect. Totally. That, you know, that's, I've been able to connect to all my mentors and friends in America through the wonderful world of Facebook. Um, Even though Facebook is, you know, not always the best medium, it's allowed me to connect and and I now use Instagram, I use Twitter, and then people can overseas send me questions um, you know, Catherine, how do you do this? Or have you got one of these? And Or if I'm trying to find, I'm at the moment trying to find a particular book mm-hmm. and I've put a question out to my entire puppet network, including overseas in America and going, if anyone sees this book for um, secondhand, please let me know. But you grew up in a time that was sort of before all that. And, mm. um, you know, so, certainly the media that we have now has usurped the traditional sense of how we learn things but I want to know how you started out with puppets so can you remember when you kind of first found puppetry arts and knew it was your thing I first found puppetry arts um in 2003 when I met my puppet building teacher Mari Martin Ferrari of Ferrari Puppets 
she was at the Canberra bus depot markets. She it was the one and only time she ever went to those markets and had her own little stall. And she was making on the spot sock puppets for children, huh. but she was handing out flyers for workshops to learn puppet building. I took a flyer and then, and it's something is, I've always wanted to know how to make a puppet. Um, I've always been interested in mask making. I've always been, you know, making things. You know, I would always pester my parents, my grandparents, my great grandmother with, you know, what's that? What is, how does that work? And, and they would always come back with the answer, a wigwam for a goose's bridle. But, you know, to make me quiet. But the thing I love the most is she was offering workshops. I took that first workshop. I was in her studio. I made my first puppet. And then that workshop still had about um, five more options on that flyer. I just went, can I book in for this one? Can I book in for this one? Can I? Like every school holidays, I'll just book in another one. Amazing. And How old were you? I was 2003. I was 23. When I met her. And it happened to be the one day that you walked down to that, that market and that happened. I, every time I went to go to Canberra, because I have family in Canberra, I would go, um, we would always go to the bus depot markets because they have wonderful fresh produce, fresh food, um, bread. We always get some bread. And my mum would always look at the garden plants and it was always handmade objects. And I'd like to wander around and see what ideas inspired me because back then I wanted to be an art teacher. Mm. And, so and I just happened person. to encounter Mari Martine. And then for the next 10 years, she was my mentor. And so you took yourself down to Canberra pretty much every school holidays just to work with her. And not even during school times, even during school terms, I would go down on weekends. I'd get the bus um, from Liverpool on the Friday um, evening, arrive at my grandparents' house like 11 o'clock at night. And then the Saturday and Sunday, I would be at my teacher's house learning how to make a puppet. And it, yeah. we went from giant puppets um, in terms of Banraku size, like one third of a human size. Mm-hmm. And she would use um, latex and foam to make the puppet. And... When I was in her workshop, she had a Muppet puppet, Muppet style. And I asked her about it and I said, you know, what's that? And she says, oh, I went to a workshop with Jim Henson. <laughs> well, <laughs> and it was just a casual name thrown out there. <laughs> and, um, and she said, well, I can teach you how to make that too. I have the pattern. Wow. And so she taught me how. And so having worked with Henson, um, there's this very special photograph that I know of in your living room of of Marion Martin with Jim Henson. Can you kind of describe what that was like to, to, to know that this person had sort of touched history and touched a god of puppetry? It was not only a god, it was also a certain green creation sitting on my, my, t- on my teacher's shoulder in that photo. There is. Um, and, you know, she's actually touched the frog, <laughs> you know, and the yeah. frog's, and the frog's creator. Um, to know that that she actually got to work with him, I also have the class video and the video shows, you know, the various lessons they took with Jim Henson. Um, they also made little student works and Jim Henson uh, got to sort of help them create and direct those works. When I um, got to travel to France and where her work, the workshop she attended was in France, in Charleville-Mézières. Yes. And the big festival, the World Festival of Puppetry. Yes, it's the world headquarters of Unima. It is. And 
in their archive is the complete video record, which includes all the rehearsal footage oh of gosh. the student pieces that were created. It was 20 days, this workshop. And, wow. you know, you could hear Jim Henson's voice in the background during their rehearsal, giving them um, directions and pointers. But I now know on the class video which segment is hers or which she was contributing to. Mm. But when I see on YouTube and, and other places footage from that workshop where Jim Henson's teaching all these puppeteers from around the world how to perform television puppets, I, I'm always looking for her. I'm looking where is she in that room. But when I get that pattern out, I have a copy of those patterns from yeah. that workshop. She gave them to me. And when I, I, it, for me it's like this is original Muppets, but this is also her um connection to jim which is then you know six degrees of separation yeah um my connection to jim even though i never got to meet him um but i sort of have my own experience that's like that and that i have a mentor who is or mentors from the henson world yeah and so sort of like every time i do my television workshops i'm sort of touching what she did in 1987 so that's my connection to her um, which is a connection back to Jim. It's sort of all about circles. Yeah, it is about circles. And I think, you know, I, I want you to just kind of describe for me that relationship of the Master Apprentice because it obviously was very special to you. And it, was, it was everything. It was, she was my puppet mother. She was my confidant. She was, she would just, no matter what question, because we would only see each other every couple of months or it might be six months or it might be a year before we saw each other, particularly towards the end of her life. Um, the last time I saw her was in 2010, January 2010, and she passed away in March 2013. So the so there was actually a whole couple of years, but we would communicate by letter. And I would ask wow. her how would I do, how to do this or um, I would send her pictures of my work and she would always write back or we talk on the phone and... And so she was like my whole puppet world. It was towards the end of her life that my puppet world was starting to expand. Mm. Um, it was sort of like just at the right time I found other puppet people in Australia and started to connect to puppet people overseas um, so that when she did die, I wasn't completely alone in the puppet world. How lucky, but yeah, um, But also as soon as sort of a couple of months after I started learning with her is when I started teaching puppet making to students in my school. Um, it was only a couple of months after I started making puppets with her that I actually started teaching my own puppet workshops. And so you were flipping between that sort of master and apprentice really, really often. Mm. Um, has that, because you've been teaching now for much longer and your your building skills as a, as a puppet builder have really drastically improved and you're constantly trying to update your skills and find new ways to do things. And the quality of your work, you know, I can safely say for myself that it is incredible. Um, and your students are now getting the opportunity to make the same kind of quality of work. So over the last, so 2013, so over the last seven years, how has that changed? How has that mastery changed your teaching? Um, in terms of teaching how to build puppets, it really completely changed when I attended Beyond the Sock in Texas for the very first time when I actually got to perform my very first puppet because then all of a sudden the way the inside of a puppet is constructed for the hand is so critical. But I didn't know that piece of information prior to my first time at Beyond the Sock in 2015. 
So 2015, my whole building style completely changed and has never gone back. Whereas mm. before, the outside was everything. The outside had to be a puppet had to look fabulous. Yes, it still has to look fabulous, but if you don't make the inside a really good quality puppet for the hand to make it as easy as possible for a puppeteer to operate, then the puppet is just a prop. You could actually yeah. hurt yourself really badly if a puppet is not constructed correctly for the hand internally. And Beyond the Sock is sort of a dual course because you're not only learning how to build puppets, but you're learning how to perform with them for film and television. Yes. And so was that really your first professional kind of workshop in puppet for television, puppeteering? It was my first um, big deal workshop. I've, um, in that, I, the workshops I did with the Borough Martin were always with other students who wanted to learn how to make a puppet. But that was more people who were interested in, I'm, I like to make a puppet, I've never made a puppet before, except, you know, when I was a little kid and I made a glove puppet. But beyond the sock, it was a really big deal in that while it's meant for complete beginners, you don't have to have any experience, you don't have to audition, you don't have to write an application, you just pay the money and show up. Um, so, so, you know, it's meant for complete beginners, but it completely changed, even though I was going there as an experienced puppet builder and I went there because I wanted to meet the building teacher. He was sort of a, a hero of mine, Pasha Romanowski of Project Puppet. What a legend, right? Yes. Like he has incredible patterns that anyone can build. And those are the patterns, well, one of them is the puppet pattern I now use in workshops that I run for people who want to learn how to make a puppet. So it's yeah. like when we met for the first time yeah. um, in 2017, I was teaching the Rolly pattern from Project Puppet. And that, because that puppet pattern always gives brilliant results in a very smallest amount of time. And so that's why I went to Beyond the Sock because I'd been corresponding with Pasha for years. We've never actually met. I just want to go. I just wanted to go and meet Pasha. I wanted to make a penguin because the year before at Beyond the Sock, they made penguin puppets. And anyone who's a Muppet lover, um, penguins are a really important part of sort of Muppet lore. Penguins and chickens. Penguins and chickens. Because, you know, Jim Henson family once said, well, if the sketch is going bad, just chuck in a penguin. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, so we met in 2017, you and I, and you have, for for at least the last three years, been my puppet master. Um, But really it was Pasha's pattern that kind of brought us all together and and we did a a workshop at the arts unit here in, in Sydney uh, which is run by the Department of Education, as we're both educators ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that kind of kicked off a really big sort of journey for you in terms of now writing sort of curriculum resources and packages for yes. the New South Wales Department of Education puppetry. And, I mean, your classroom, your library, is literally covered in puppets for yes. your students to enjoy. You now have over 60 puppets in that space, but now you're known for it. Like, people are writing newspaper articles about you for this. Yes. So, you know, as a person who came into puppetry just because I was a drama teacher, really keen to, to learn about this particular craft, which I thought was sort of dying. Um, how, how have you touched other people in terms of, you know, using those workshops as a, as a kickstand for educating, you know, young kids and, and also adults? Well, th- what I do for teachers who want to take sort of puppetry arts or the concept of making puppets or performing puppets into their teaching practice, it's a way of connecting with children 
because when my students, especially our, our year seven students, our, their first year of high school, they come on their first day into the library because we're air conditioned and <laughs> they walk in and they see the puppets and they go, oh, that looks like so-and-so from Sesame Street. Like it's instant connection to Brings their back. childhood. Yeah, that origin point of childhood. That yeah. origin point. And the children who have sort of that engineering mind, um, that curious mind, they might they will come and ask me, you know, how does it work? Or sometimes the children will just ask me, and, and they're really sweet. They go, Miss, can we touch, can we play with the puppets? Oh. And it's so sweet. And I go, yes, sure, you don't have to ask permission. All I ask is you put them back when you're done. And so they will go and grab a puppet off the stand and then they will go and they'll put the hand in and start exploring how does the puppet work. I don't have to tell them anything. Sometimes I might feel some of the puppets have a little eye blinks or a little lever inside to do something and they'll go, Miss, what does this do? And I go, well, push it and find out. <laughs> but sometimes it then spawns new questions of how does it work? How does a puppet made? Start, they start to ask the higher order building questions. They start to explore their um, their interests. And in the world of where education is now turning to STEAM, and I say STEAM because art is important in that <laughs> that little acronym there, um, your library has changed from, you know, a place where it was normally just books and, and some technological resources to quite literally a steam lab, you know, with 3D printers and with puppets and, you know, you pull out the insides and a lot of people don't know how technical puppet building is and yes. they kind of just see the facade or the, the the skin of the puppet and they just assume it all came together really, really easily. But then you get into it and you realise that, you know, those little eyebrows that move actually have a mech behind them and mm. Elmo's head is a lot more complex than it looks like. And, and you know, I want to know how you've been sort of bringing the transformation of the library into your practice as a puppet builder? Well, when I arrived in the library as the teacher librarian in 2010, uh, the library was a dying space. A uh, previous librarian um, only wanted the children who were absolutely silent. And children, the children of today, students of today, are not silent. They are collaborators. They want to work together. They want to explore. And also, but t- learning now is you know, research and development virtually. And also it's, I try to create a space where children can find the answer to any question. So they might have, I have a a young student who will be uh, 14 this year and he loves Lego and he would build me a new motorised thing virtually every lunchtime and he would like, you want to gear up the motor to make it go faster or gear it down, make it go slower so that it can has more torque, it can climb up over things. Now I've given him an Arduino kit and he's trying to integrate an Arduino coding into Lego building, which is not done. He's trying to make two different systems come together into one. But you also have a student who builds you a puppet every day, am I right? Yes, yes. Uh, he builds, not every day, he's now down to every week. Okay, he so started it, He started it every day. <laughs> Um, he's a student with autism spectrum disorder, and but the way he loves to communicate is through puppets. How incredible. Uh, he lives for everything puppets. If we let him, his answer to every assignment would be to either write a puppet story, make a puppet story, make a puppet, or anything to do with a puppet. All I have to do, and of course when he walked into the library um, for the first time, and saw all our puppets, 
he was in heaven. Yeah, of course. And for him, his the puppets um, are a way of him for him to ex- explore and but communicate in his world. And he loves yeah. to draw. He, he is verbal, but his passion, his interest, what he wants to research, what he wants to learn about is puppets. What I'm interested in, you know, Sesame Street recently brought in a character that has autism spectrum disorder. And I think um, there is a great uh, sort of line of inquiry as to how autism spectrum disorder and puppetry sort of pair together really nicely. We've obviously uh, just had Dead Puppet Society perform Laser Big Man in Sydney where Tim Sharp, the um, artist, has had all of his work interpreted um, into puppets and mm. and his stories were all because he was nonverbal as a child they were now brought in through this character this laser big man uh, who has transcended into this amazing show and I guess we as puppeteers and, and, and educators as well we're becoming more aware of the different needs of children mm. I'm really inspired by that student and by how you're able to foster that space for him that he can learn what do you think it is about puppetry that does that for him and does that for so many kids? Well, for children like him, puppets are, are soft um, in that some students with autism spectrum disorders um, are really find textures to be very, help them find calm. Yeah. Because in the way they process their world is is sometimes very high speed. And so some textures, so some of our, my puppets are very, very soft and for them holding the puppet or stroking a puppet or putting their hand inside um, the lycra lining of my puppets um, gives them a, the sensation that helps them find calm Amazing. and helps them make order of their world. Yeah. And for some of my students working, uh, some of my puppets are, are two-handed puppets, like uh, Ernie is a two-handed puppet. A glove puppet yeah, of sorts, yeah. A, a, pup, a, a bag puppet where you need a second puppeteer. Got it. But that allows them, some students with autism spectrum do not like to have people too close to them. They need space. But having a puppet with a second puppeteer, mm. they get used to having a... A barrier of sorts. Well, it's a barrier, but also having you saying someone close to them, touching, virtually touching their skin, another human. I see. So you're also training them to use that. So it's helping them develop social skills in that they're not really thinking about themselves and the fact that someone's touching them. They're thinking about the puppet. What is the puppet doing? Wow. And just happens that someone is touching their arm or their skin. So they're getting used to the sensation of a second person. So, so those puppets are very useful for that. But we don't deliberately put puppets into social lessons and those sorts of things. We just have the puppets there. And we let, I let the children uh, play with the puppets. My only rule is puppets do not fight. I like other, that rule. Other than that, they can... I see young kids, like, pick up the puppet and they will come and tell me a story, their own story, like, their own creative work. Wow. It'd be a short story, like a little, little, you know, something really quick that the puppet wants to tell me. Yeah. But then sometimes I'll see one of our senior students who are about to graduate. You know, they're all, you know, grown up and they're seventeen or eighteen years old. They go and pick up a puppet and they just want to be silly with their friends. Totally. So it's a way of them accessing imagination, silliness, creativity for the kids who have engineering minds. 
for me. I keep a lot of um, construction materials in the library. One, so I can keep re keep repairing the puppets. I know I've got about three puppets when I return to school next week who need a little bit of TLC to be ready for the onslaught of Year 7. Huh. Um, I know one of them needs a hand sewn back on. So, like, I keep needle and threads and scissors and things at school and and sometimes and I will sit in front of the children and I will sew a puppet or I will fix a puppet or I can construct something and it will just in encourage the children to use the side of their mind that asks those higher order questions about how is that made, what is it made from, you know, rather than just going, oh, it's a puppet, it's a That's toy, not, it's yeah. a, you know, it's a soft toy. Yeah. And, you know, there's lots of educators out there who I think would want to use puppetry in their practice, but don't really know how and you just having that there and just simply letting it exist and letting it be a you know a point of inquiry for a kid is is amazing but what advice if any do you have for for teachers who are thinking about wanting to engage learners through puppetry or, or wanting to use puppetry in their practice if you want to use puppetry in, in your practice um a puppet applies to science because there are the physics of a puppet there's um, the engineering of a puppet, so that implies to uh, industrial arts and to design and technology. You know, a puppet can apply to English in that you write a story, you um, and then for drama you develop a play. Um, it develop, you know, it, you could find a puppet in virtually every key learning area of the curriculum, in that you can make it apply. Uh, the mathematics involved in building a puppet skeleton. There's measuring, there's weights. Like when I'm casting puppet eyes, I have to weigh, weigh the resin. So, you know, you have to use, you have to have this material science. When you're building, especially foam puppets, you know, you have to be aware of glue. You have to be aware of how the foam works and the physics of the mouth plate. So there's a ways of, that's why I use puppetry and STEM or STEAM you know, because you know, applying for both sides of the argument here, <laughs> um, but you can you can put puppetry not only into um, the primary school curriculum, you can also apply it to a high school curriculum. Uh, the workshop that I ran for you was for the arts curriculum, so a puppet is visual, so that's visual arts. A puppet is storyteller, so that's drama. So it so beautifully applied in there, and also you can create songs with puppets, so that applies to music. Yeah. So, you know, there's been great musicals out there using puppets. There's, like, right now there's Warhorse going around. As the Warhorse, it got the world really excited again about puppets. It did. Um, it's kind of a real game changer, hey? Yes. and But also it applies to history. Warhorse tells a story of the, from the First World War. Yeah. Even though it's not a factual story, it's based on fact. I, I think this kind of leads us to think that, you know, the real defining thing about all this is that it t puppets tell stories or puppets are a vehicle to tell stories. And I think if you are able to tell stories, you can pretty much teach anything. Yes. Which is why we love performing so much and why as performers and puppeteers, the story is always key. I guess my other question though is for people who don't feel comfortable, like teachers maybe not feeling comfortable to access puppetry as a way of teaching or really a way of telling stories. So do you have any kind of suggestions as to how they might be able to just you know, pick something up and feel like it's not going to be the end of the world. Well, if you don't feel comfortable making a puppet, you can actually buy uh, very good puppets from places like Folk Manus. Folk Manus have excellent little creatures of all sorts. Um, 
and that or you can go to often well, they're sold in toy stores or even you can turn simple household objects into a, a puppet. It's called object theatre. It is. And all you have to do is like even a wooden spoon can be a puppet in that you can just draw on two black eye, two little eyes, draw a smile on, maybe grab some scrap of cloth or even use your jumper sleeve as body, mm. pipe cleaner for arms. And you have a puppet. But even my... Uh, Forky is coming to mind, which is a terrifying <laughs> thought. And just for clarification, Catherine actually does come into schools and uh, create a puppetry uh, building and then performing workshop, which is what she was referring to before, uh, where she came in to teach my students in my school uh, mm. all about puppetry. And we ended up having an ensemble of eight crazy puppets um, yes. of all different characters. Fabio comes to mind <laughs> with an enormous moustache and yes. uh, a particular... Uh, kind of grotesque nature. But I think the greatest thing is that the kids are able to do what they want with it as well. They are able to put themselves into the puppet. Um, but and even I, the shyest child, because um, for me, I never wanted to puppeteer. I always wanted to just be a builder and sort of, I got sort of got, because I took the first Beyond the Shot class, it sort of, I had to do the puppeteering. You had no choice, but... Puppeteering for television is the puppeteer must not be seen. So it was not as scary. But I remember one of the, the most famous sort of concepts from my one of my puppetry teachers, Noel McNeil, is that you have a puppet always with you. All the time. 24-7, you have a puppet with you. Is it called your hand? It's called your hand. It's called your hand. <laughs> and you can even get some ping pong balls and some elastic and you can glue those pink, two ping pong balls onto a stretch of elastic about 10 centimetres long, glue that, those ends of elastic together, slide it onto your fingers and then use your thumb as the mouth and you have your own puppet with eyes. I guess, yeah. <laughs> for you, not much money. For not much money at all. And somehow there is something super disarming about that. And, and it takes all the seriousness out of education and brings back in the silliness, which is what I love about it. Hey, we're going to take a short break. Um, so you are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Catherine Hannaford. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and we'll be back with you shortly. This is Philip Miller. I'm Richard Bradshaw. I'm Sue Wallace. And you are listening to Talking Sock. Talking Sock Podcast. A one orange sock production. This is the number one podcast for puppetry in the country. Your one-stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners. The number one puppetry podcast in Australia. Follow this podcast. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with Pete Davidson and Catherine Hannaford. And we've been talking puppetry arts and education. But now, Catherine, it's time to talk more about you and your work. So... What's happening? What's the current project? What are you working on? I currently actually have five projects going. Okay, so you're not busy. You're fine. You, you know, you're just cruising along. Which one's the, the favourite? What's the most important project? Um, well, favourite project at the moment is happens to be I'm working on three cosplay ideas. I've never made cosplay objects in foam. And so, and this is something new for me to, I wanted to explore what else I can do with foam, apart from make foam puppets. And then we're referring to reticulated foam that you would use for puppets or the more crafty foam stuff? Craft foam and floor mats. 
Floor mats. Floor mats. Old school yoga or are we talking... Old school yoga mats and oh. also the floor mat that interlocks it and you stand on or play on. Oh, the kids mats that kids you get craft rubber. Yes. Okay. So I've um, been working on making a, a Star Wars helmet from... That's uh, Boba Fett. Wow. And I'm currently working on a steampunk uh, top hat because uh, I love to make costumes as part of what we do in the library each year is... I make a costume we have for our annual Multicultural Day. And so I've dressed up as Maleficent. I've dressed up as Professor McGonagall from Harry Potter, Edna Mode from The Incredibles. and Milan, darling, Milan. Milan. Yes. yes, fantastic. And would would these ever get seen in a public space? Like are we thinking Supernova or one of those great Comic-Con-style conventions? Well, maybe, but what I'm trying to do is find a way that I can adapt my puppet building skills in foam into something that I know I have students at my school who love um, cosplay. They love to dress up in um, costumes and go to places like Supernova, Comic-Con, but they don't know how to make their costume. Right, so you're trying to get hit with the kids. So it's a way of me using my puppet skills in the library. Um, I want to run a lunchtime foam club uh, where I teach the children how to make cosplay armour, Yes. Um, make costumes that appeals to them, show them how to do it, but sort of, and then at the end of the year. So each year, so I've got mapped out that first term we'll do hats and helmets, second term gloves and gauntlets. Oh, wow. Third term we'll probably start looking at body armour. It's like Zelda. And then, yep, Zelda. or um, But then Can in I fourth come? term when things are a little crazy, I'll teach them how to make a puppet. Hey. So, but then they could, they've learnt how to cut foam, glue foam. So, teaching them how to make a puppet from scratch, um, at the end of the year, they've already already got all the skills that lead to puppet building. Wow, I had this image in my head of like a kid who's like fully decked out in the, like the link foam puppet gear, then trying to work a glue <laughs> gun and make a, a puppet with it, and then have a miniature like portrait puppet of themselves in all the get up. That would be like the pinnacle of that club. And so this is an extracurricular activity that you're doing at your Yes, school. because I used to have puppet building or puppetry as a actual timetable class in my school for two years. Unreal. And they learnt how to build foam puppets, rod puppets, shadow puppets, um, all kinds of puppets. Yeah. And, and I, but unfortunately because of timetable restrictions, um, my school moved to teaching STEM and, and STEAM in my school, well, we call it STEM because um, they don't agree with the A concept. I'm going to be shaking my fist <laughs> just for the mental image of, of our listeners. As much as I'm... I try to tell them to put the A in, they will not listen to me. So STEM or STEAM, but they, we'll they moved away from um, these enrichment courses where I had puppetry right. into all of year eight now does STEM or STEAM. So I love. But you teach that, right? I teach STEM um, and STEAM. I teach it. Um, I actually timetabled for it this year, but it's a way of me bringing puppets back into my school as an activity. <laughs> yeah. That might, if I get like a following going, it might even one day maybe work its way back to the timetable. Yeah, I but can see it, you just like you know doing it's just <laughs> the me trying evil to, genius twiddle how, of the fingers. It's like how can I bring puppet making back into my school? Of course, yeah. So I'm going ah. Lunchtime activity. Yeah. Maybe I can make it a lunchtime activity, but also I want to, like, seeing some of the 
children in my school who love Comic-Con and Supernova, they're also some of the most socially isolated kids. Right. They don't have a lot of friends. They spend a lot of time in the library, which is where I get to meet them. Mm. But maybe if I can get this foam club going, they'll meet other kids who love um, cosplay and they love these characters and they can even have some ding-dong arguments about which is better, DC or Marvel. But... It's a way. It's a way of them connecting with each other and maybe making some friends, and but also they'll make some really cool outfits that they could wear to Comic Con or Supernova that don't cost a fortune or just around the school because that uniform is boring. Let's go with that, yeah. Oh no, we 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 encourage the students to wear our uniforms with pride. Um, okay, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, all right. But so that's why I'm currently working. So, so in order to teach this phone club, I've got to sort of teach myself. And also I'm looking at, you know, what materials, what techniques are most appropriate and safest for my students. Mm. So in order to do that, I've got to teach myself. So at the moment on my work table, I have a half-completed steampunk top hat and a, a one-quarter completed Boba Fett helmet. One um, is on top of the other. One, one is on top of the other. It which looks, is taking it, Star Wars to a different place for me, which I'm, I'm okay with. I'm okay with and it. And it's also, insp- um, the top hat's actually inspiring my costume for this year's Multicultural Day. Um, I want to do, I want to dress up, because I'm because uh, I'm the librarian, I want to dress up as the Mad Hatter from uh, Alice in Wonderland. So my top hat at the moment is painted black, but the idea is to go over it with some copper and then some green verdigris to make it like aged copper. And, and then also there's another really cool steampunk element that I want to add to the top, to the character of the Mad Hatter in that I want to turn my arm into a mechanical arm, like C-3PO, but it has like tea bubbling in, like it's, it's, um, it's called the, it's it's part of the actual design of the mechanical arm. There's this box which has this window that you can see that's got um, like a liquid bubbling in it with lights behind it. Um, so I'm going to make it that that brews tea. So it's kind of getting you into some pretty heavy techniques for costuming mm-hmm. with a bit of STEM in there as well. Oh, I said it. I said STEM, not steam. <laughs> what am I going to do? Um, and so what about puppets? Because obviously our listeners yes. are puppet people. Okay, uh, what so, kind of puppets? Um, well, at the moment I'm also working on a mechanical puppet. It's a group of singing. Um, I can't say what the object is, but it's, it's four of the same object that you find in your pencil case. And they all have to sing simultaneously when the puppeteer pulls the trigger. So it's involving a lot of mechanics. Wow. And so, and the puppet has to, um, so it's all about the engineering of that puppet. At the moment, I'm about to laser cut the base because I have a laser cutter in my workshop. Um, Then I've still got to start prototyping the actual, um, how am I going to run the cables uh, because the cables have to go through a right angle on because there's four of these objects side by side. The cable actually has to do some 90 degree turns. Wow. So it's all about how can I organize pulleys and things so that 
everything comes to one trigger because it's one puppeteer has to operate this puppet, but there are four of them and they all have to sing in unison. I mean, I'm taking back to all those sort of old mechanical carnival um, instruments that you see in big top circuses from sort of the 50s onwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, they were sort of a bit like the clown heads that turn, but yes. but they sang, yeah. Um, sort of like, and steam would come out of them sometimes and you it, it, it kind of sits nicely with your steampunk stuff at the moment, this, this kind of... <laughs> um, mechanics but um okay so that's obviously for a project that you're um being commissioned for this year so bringing us to this year what what do you where what's the plan what do you see yourself going with this year um my big goal this year in terms of puppet building is i really want to build my first tabletop puppets that's mechanical uh i'm very inspired by the work of hans-jürgen fettig um, he built amazing tabletop puppets that you could put it down on the ta- put the puppet down on the table, and the whole puppet body would lock up, and you could walk away, and that puppet would stand completely still wow. on the table. Whereas normally, when you let a puppet go, it just crumbles it into into yeah. a heap. Yeah. But Hans Jodig designed a puppet that you could put down. And it would just stand there. Like it a would, static object. It was a static object. Of its own. But it would just you could just leave it. You could just walk away. Huh. Take your hands off. And but that is a very mechanically complex idea because it's also about where the centre of gravity of the puppet is. Because if you have the yeah. centre of gravity too far forward or too far back, the mechanism doesn't work, the puppet will fall over. Totally. Even when it's all lo- all the connections are locked, the gravity will pull the puppet in the wrong direction. So it's all about the engineering of that puppet. Yeah, so I see you going in a much more mechanical, mm. tech spec sort of way with your puppeteering now. Having come from Muppets, which is, you know, generally... Soft. Soft and, and generally fairly simple. Mostly it's just the mouth mechanism. Uh, where, why, what has brought you to this, this place of, of getting into the technical stuff and the mechs? It's the next challenge because I, I, I just want to keep learning. I want to be a life... I'm a lifelong learner and... Yes, I've sort of accomplished a lot in the world of foam, but and I'm not going to leave foam. People will still ask me to make foam puppets, and I still love teaching people how to make foam because it's very accessible and very achievable for anyone to make a foam puppet. But for me, it's the challenge. It's the mechanical challenge. Like, I have a very mechanical mind. Like, someone described to me they wanted four mechanical singing pens, um, singing pens and things, and I'm going, I know exactly how to make that. Like I could see it in my mind. I could see the mechanic. Um, and I love how just a lever or a piece of string can add so much more life to a puppet where you couldn't even get a puppeteer's arm to go. You know, sometimes you, you have to puppet is so small, you cannot get your hand inside it or you don't want a rod out of it. So I love the mechanics you know, a cable or a string or a lever could just bring so much more life to a puppet where you're going, but that makes the audience go, how on earth do they do that? Totally. Um, so that's what excites me a moment about pup in puppetry. And that's because I'm also looking at, um, I'm applying for one of the world's best puppetry conferences to do the me- mechanics Workshop. Are we talking about the O'Neill, the Eugene talking, O'Neill Theatre? We're talking about the O'Neill Puppetry Conference. Oh, yes. And so I'm challenging myself in that it's very technically difficult to actually even attend that conference. You have to apply. You have to write 
a mini manifesto on puppetry. Yeah. You have to write, um, you know, what are you going to contribute? You have to write all this this and, application yeah, just to intense. attend. And I think as an Australian as well, it's particularly daunting because then we are met with the costs of getting to the US. Um, yes. But it, also, you know, we see puppetry as very much an American art form at the moment because I guess Henson lives there. <laughs> uh, but... It, you know, the the, the O'Neill is the next venture for you, I guess, a step up from uh, from the Beyond the Sock, uh, which is more of a beginner's program. Well, Beyond the Sock is beginner's program. Anyone can go from any... It's now um, many different people from around the world. There's been Germans, Israelis. Uh, there's been uh, three Australians now have attended Beyond the Sock. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> Representation! But also for me, attending the, the workshop in the US at the O'Neill or attending Beyond the Sock or taking a class with the Stan Winston School, what you get, you take away from that is links to materials and things in the US. Yeah. The problem with that is a lot of US suppliers do not ship to Australia. But if I get to go to the O'Neill, I will be able to bring home the mechanism I make there. Yeah. But then I can go to our suppliers, our manufacturers, our, you know, people who sell plastics and things and go... Okay, here is the object I'm trying to find here in Australia. Do you have it? Yeah. What do we call it? And I start translating because then when other – this is the great thing as going back to the idea of um, everyone sharing their techniques online now mm. is quite often Australian puppet builders who are just beginning would, would like get on the various forums and say, look, I'm in Australia, I'm trying to find this. I'm able to get in and say, you go to this place. So, you know, instead of buying your foam from – um, or your fleece from America, I can say you can get it from here or you can get your foam from Clark Rubber or you can get it from Foam Booth or, you know, the best places in Australia to find things or when they use uh, plumber's ep- epoxy putty in, like, videos from Tested.com with Adam Savage or from the Stan Winston School, I can tell everyone, well, here we call it um, Sellies. It's made by Sellies. Okay, so just having and those basics. It. And it's just having those basic ability to translate from American materials into Australian. Totally. Um, because then, one, it will cost less because you don't have to pay overseas shipping or it's available because um, there's a fabulous um, supplier of all mechanical things, plastics and screws and things. It's called McMaster Car. Every puppet builder I know in America swears by it. Right. And, like, I just saw an Instagram post from Adam Savage going, like, he'll swear on his McMaster Car catalogue. And I'm going, mm-hmm. that's all very well. Unfortunately, McMaster Car does not ship to Australia. So as a, as a puppet builder in Australia who uses a lot of American patterns, that must be a pretty consistent frustration for you. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so going to the O'Neill, you know, it will bring you, obviously, that that material value, but what are you trying to get out of it as a, you know, is it a networking opportunity? Is it a chance for you to try it's, something different? Well, it even like, um, all the workshops I've attended overseas is it like beyond the sock or if I get to go to the Anil, um, yes, because a lot of my, like my best puppetry friends are from beyond the sock. Yeah. Uh, like we have our own little Facebook group that we're all sharing what we're currently doing. Um, or we'll use the group to coordinate that if we're all at beyond the sock, we'll coordinate having dinner together or, um, transport to and from the airport. Like someone will say, well, I'm getting, uh, you know, a ride share from the airport, anyone else arriving about this time and as a way of us connecting and, and like we wish each other happy birthday when our birthdays come round. Puppet and power community. We even do um, our own little online puppet slams. 
cute. And some someone will suggest a theme. And, and like as a it, Skype interview, like a conference? No, you, what you do is someone suggests a theme yeah. and then uh, they set a due date. <laughs> and then we, we create our own little video um, submissions and then we submit it and share the link by the date and we can see each other. But because it's all within our private group, there's no judgment, there's no pressure. Safe. If you're not um, comfortable performing or if you're still a beginner and you're still just trying to get the puppet to look correctly on screen. That's um, a which really is, great which idea. Is, it's like creating our own little puppet slam. Yeah. Um, so last year it was Fozzie's Joke Night, you know, looking at CNC technology, laser cutting, water cutting, looking – they're pushing the boundaries of – they even built all those giant puppets – for the Moscow opening ceremony for the Moscow um, the win- the Winter Olympics in Russia, yeah, Sochi, um, they built all those giant puppets. Yeah, I remember those. Um, so you know, with creature technology, so spare parts, um, Terrapin Puppet Theater in Tasmania. So we don't have a defined style. So we're creating all this puppet work that either is revolutionary in terms of using new technology, um, but also we're going. Also, looking a lot at uh, what is happening overseas, but we're not using, like we saw Jamadi recently perform his shadow work, but his shadow puppetry was a mixture of traditional, traditionally cut way and cool it buffalo hide mm. with cardboard as well and paper. Which but, is very much kind of more what Richard Bradshaw does with his puppet, um, yes. his shadow puppets, if the cardboard stuff. But, but also I mean, Richard Bradshaw also works in wood. He does. Lot, some, of his, some of his puppets are also wooden. So we're at both using like any methodology that comes from overseas, but also we then retwist it and we go, well, we'll just start using new technologies to remake. See, for me, I now laser cut puppet parts that you would normally cut on a bandsaw or you would cut you know, the handsaw you'd cut in different ways, but I use the technology that I can draw it in the computer and then send it straight to my laser cutter, knowing that it's very precise. Mm-hmm. Um, I use 3D printing a lot in my puppet making. Uh, so it's all about, in Australia, we embrace the new technologies more. Right. Um, but what there needs to be in Australia is more people writing puppet works um, we need more people to create puppet work, that new puppet work. Um, like we're just starting, we would like to get more um, more of our puppet masters to run workshops here at home. Yeah. That's for me, that's one of, one of the things, um, you know, why I go to the O'Neill, why I go to Beyond the Sock is that I can't learn those things here. Totally. Um, the masters are unfortunately in the US. Um and yes, it's great to go and meet them and great that I get to make these friends, but um, I am sick of all the travelling. Totally. I'd love to be able to learn, you know, from our homegrown talent. But we're sort of, in terms of our, the way I feel about it, is we're sort of 20 years behind the um, what's happening in the in overseas and that the overseas masters are now running work, open workshops. Anyone wants to learn, you know, it's not, but we're still very um, defined by our, you know, our states, um, like we recently had distance. Our di- the distance between, um, we're also not willing to travel. Yeah. <laughs> um, like we'd recently had a great puppet builder from Western Australia here in Sydney, um, Leon Hendroff. Leon Hendroff. And he makes giant puppets, like they're more than one story tall, um, out of garden tubing. 
Like he, he goes to the hardware store and, you know, he buys everything from the irrigation section and everything he makes is from that section and he makes giant puppets from it, which is amazing. Yeah. And, but it was really great. Like his workshop sold out so fast. I think people are really, I think you're right. People are really craving, um, homegrown talent because it should be said that there is really no formal puppetry education existing in Sydney or even in, in Australia, we don't have a bachelor of puppetry arts or theatrical mm. arts majoring in puppetry. And so for, yeah, for younger learners, it's certainly difficult, but even for those of you, uh, people who, who are like yourself, who are kind of more experienced, but are still wanting to, to be a lifelong learner. Yeah. It is a real challenge to, to find that education. And I guess you've really come through by using the internet as your, your portal to all that, mm. you know, you've accessed it in a really, um, I think incredibly ingenious way. Um, so what do you think it needs otherwise to thrive for performers? So you think writing and, and, and we think, you know, using the masters and giving ourselves spaces to, to, to learn from each other. Yeah. Giving, giving our space ourselves, um, getting spaces to learn in. Totally. Is because there are very few spaces that are willing to like open themselves up and let some crazy puppet people come in and make a mess. <laughs> we do make a mess. Um, you know, even foam puppet building, you know, can be messy. Um, <laughs> and so we we look needing we need of spaces that don't cost a fortune to hire, um, who are willing to let a whole bunch of crazy puppet people come in and just make mess. But also like the lack of spaces where you can go with other if you want to collaborate on a big puppet project, not just to learn, but to actually construct yeah. puppets for a show you know the actual space to actually build puppets for a show like I work in a very tiny space I have a folding table in my living room which is where I build my, some of my puppets and then a very um tiny little garage one car garage outside to do all the outside stuff and that's all I have space I have to make the puppets I make so you know it does require me to be creative and innovative and how I use space. And so how are we going to get there? How, what advice do you have for young puppet builders or puppet performers or people like yourself who, you know, to try and make this happen in Australia, to try and make the to industry make, improve to, and build? To, to make it happen, if you know of a space, for heaven's sakes, please share on the various Australian puppet groups, Australian puppet forums, that you know of a space that would be willing to let some crazy puppet people make mess. Or, or if there's a space that, you know is not expensive that, you know, five people working on a project, um, you know, could split a cost, you know, very easily between them, um, make it more affordable for uh, puppet productions to make work, especially new work that we want to try and get new works happening at festivals. We've just had the first Randwick puppet festival here in Sydney. So exciting. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily new work. There was one one new work um, by uh, called Dionysius, beautiful work. Um, I saw its premiere um, a year ago, and it's now been revised, and it's incredibly. It's got so much better since it's been revised. Um, so, but she doesn't have spaces that could take the show. You know, we want people to. We want venues that are willing to take puppet works. So it's been so exciting during the Sydney Sydney Festival 
um, having so many puppet works. Oh, gosh, it's amazing. It was, uh, I think it was, last count, three? Yeah, well, we had Ronnie Burkett, um with his amazing show, Forget Me Not, and we had... Jamadi. Jamadi, which is... Uh, uh, Indonesian Shadow Puppetry. And was unreal because he's also a visual artist and brought all those incredible sort of ciphers and symbols into his work through... Um, the more mm. traditional style of Indonesian puppet style. And we um, had uh, Shadow. Laser Big Man. Laser Big Man. Uh-huh. And just the most, you know, incredible company. I think, you know, Dead Puppet Society is really pioneering um, creating new work when it comes mm. to puppetry in Sydney, but also because they have that access to the Lincoln Centre in New York and that they were going to be based both in Queensland and in Sydney. It's really exciting to see what they are doing as sort of the the heralds of big big theatre performances like Stormboy as well earlier last year. Yes. Um, and, I, and I guess we also have, you know, um, object theatre is coming into play. So uh, Sydney Festival also had uh, Airplay uh, by... Oh, yes, that was the fourth. Uh, yeah, incredible. So there were four, four um, you know, four forms of puppet theatre. Mm. And, you know, and, and that's really exciting that puppet theatre is starting to become into something as big as the Sydney Festival because Sydney Festival is not is all about the performing arts. It's not just puppet theatre. Absolutely. Puppet. But then we just at the same time had the Randwick Puppet Festival. But if we can have opportunities like the Randwick Puppet Festival, we've got the Melbourne Puppetry Festival coming up in later July. in July. Yeah. And to encourage people to make new work and, like, take them to these festivals. But way back in the um, 1980s, we used to have lots of puppet festivals, like the the One Van Festival that was um, coordinated by the Sydney Puppet Theatre. Um, yes, it was a big... It was a lot to coordinate, but just looking at the archive, because I've been um, scanning all the old... Australian puppeteer magazines, but reading about how many different puppets were performing in um, in one van, it was like we need to sort of try and bring that back so that new work can be performed and tested and developed. Totally. Catherine, thanks so much for talking with us today. And you guys can find Catherine on Instagram and Twitter at Miss K Hannaford and on her blog, misshannaford.edu.blogs.org. You can find all these details in the cast description and through our website, oneorangesock.com. Thanks for listening with us today and make sure you subscribe for great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson. I'm Catherine Hannaford. And we'll talk again soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at OneOrangeSockProductions and check out our episode blog at OneOrangeSock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions, and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout-out on our socials. Head to our website at oneorangetalk.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Barnier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. We'll be back next week with another great episode here at Talking Sock.